And welcome on in, everybody, to the Check Your Brain podcast. Here on Patreon, uh, whether you're listening behind the paywall at patreon.com slash Tony Mazer, or uh, if you're listening on the free platforms on uh, wherever you get your podcasts on Apple or Spotify or iHeart, and uh, they're basically anywhere you can basically get your podcasts. And I'm looking forward to this guest uh, who's uh, a guest on some of my friends' podcasts, and uh, is I've got a chance to see him perform live and if he's coming to a town near you, you definitely got to go see him. And that's Rick Monroe. Rick, uh, uh, we we're just talking about uh, if, if I need a pick me up, I get a monster, but uh, I got to put one of, one of these wristbands on first nice. before I get that. I got the old Rick Monroe. This is a big ass wristband, though. Yeah, man. Well, yeah, because we sweat a lot. You know, we got to, you know, I got to have that, got to cover that up. You got to get that real big, like, you know, cuff looking look for it. So, yeah, you definitely, and especially you don't want to get to, uh, you don't want to get it caught in the, the strings of a guitar and everything like that. And yeah, there's so much sweat, but uh, I actually was, I think you gave me two of them. I was using one for one of my day jobs uh, over the summer. So it was a, it, it was a nice thing. And the reason I use this because I have a Fitbit and I didn't want to get it damaged. So I just put the wristband over that and I use it when I play softball. So I still get my steps and uh, I get to I mean, promote still, the brand. Keep it safe. It's funny. I actually wear it further up my arm because the way I play acoustic it's pretty aggressive. And so I end up rubbing my arm. So that's, and a lot, a lot of bartenders use it um, to hold their, uh, their bottle openers. So. I mean, it, well, and when you play acoustic and you guys play a lot of shows and I want to get to it and talk about uh, your career and kind of where I guess the state of music is especially, but uh, I was first introduced to you years ago. It's one of those weird things where it's just like, Oh, it's that guy. And I end up meeting you and I get, get this chance to see you live because I loved your cover of Midnight Rider. Oh, wow, yeah. And this, I, 2005, I think that came out, right? Wow, yeah, that's a long, yeah, it was a long time ago. It was just... Because I'm, a, to be honest, I was never raised with country. I was raised with Motown, classic rock. And then by the time the 90s came out, there was the post-grunge, the alternative that was happening. Country was never in our uh, in our background. I know it's definitely in yours from where you grew up, but country was never out there. So when I was introduced to it, it was usually right around the time of the Rascal Flats, the turn of the century country. And I'm like, ah, this isn't, this isn't, I'm not a big fan. And it, I, but what I did enjoy were the outlaw country uh, acts. And I loved Midnight Rider because it definitely has the outlaw feeling. And when you hear Sturgill Simpson, you hear some of these other acts that uh, even, a, even a Chris Stapleton in some ways at, at a big level, uh, Eric Church, I enjoy the, the songwriting. I enjoy the guitar playing. I enjoy the grittiness and the hardness and all of that that goes into more of the what they call the outlaw country. Uh, as opposed to more of the poppy that basically it's pop music with a little twang to it. And that's where I was introduced to Midnight Rider, the, your cover of it, because it it has the elements that Allman Brothers came out with, but it also had the updated type of version of where country was, I guess, at that time. Yeah. Well, it was funny, man. A lot of the stuff that we did um, was kind of based off the idea. My premise was always, I love the writing of country music. I love like the... Um, the storytelling, but I always felt like it, it lacked, you know, some balls basically, you know I mean? It's like great music, but it just needs a little something. So we try to take the thump of rock and roll in that kind of heartbeat and put it to, you know, country style writing. And that's when we did Midnight Rider. It was funny. We were actually playing in club and I was like, man, y'all need a two-step. When I was in California and I'm like, all right, well then here, 
instead of actually like learning somebody else, like another country song, I just started taking rock songs and turning them into like whatever their dance was. Like we did um, Ace of Spades by Motorhead and that would be considered a 10 step. Like, man, when he does a 10 step, I'm like, all right, well check this out. I remember I played it the first time. I'm like, I don't know who that is, but man, I love that song. I'm like, that's Motorhead. What? <laughs> <laughs> so that's kind of how we got around it. And man, when I first came to Nashville, you know, like 15 years ago or 16 years ago, I was like, hey man, I got an idea. Let's let's do like rock based instrumentation, but with country songs and then throw some country stuff over it. And they used to look at me like, man, we don't literally had four meetings in a row. And the exact same response was, yeah, but we don't do that here. Mm. Every one of them said that. And I was like, all right. And then Jason Aldean came out and I'm like, I thought you said you didn't do that around here. <laughs> well, I mean, it's a it's a definite genre because uh, that really changed. I talked to many years ago, I talked to a country program director uh, who worked out of Nashville, worked out a couple of places. And he was telling me this story about what they did with the image of the country music fan and the country singer or group or whatever. And it really was a very artificial, like it was not a grassroots changeover in Nashville, that this was a, a, a true artificial effort to change the country boy and the country girl and you want some really creepy inside baseball stuff not to cut you off but i got mm -hmm. something that's way like way deep in they they did um like um they did a lot of like i forgot the, the name of it but it's basically where you you map human thoughts and, and and then the energies of a human being and where they where they whatever some like biorhythmic i guess is that what it'd be that sounds about right i think it's like biorhythmic or it's all these different things and so what they did was they figured out the exact um, tempo, key change, phrases, and all these things. And they did all these metrics and they studied all these people for a long period of time until they came up with what they thought was pretty much the perfect metrics for a country song. And then those, the, when they did that, they went to the top publishing companies in town and gave it to them and said, you need to write these songs right here, all these keys, all these things, and these are the catchphrases. And so for a long time, you notice all of a sudden, like you were saying, they dictated what the new look was and all those guys gave it to their top writers. And, and then it was like for a long time, every song was like in the same key, same tempo, same groove, same lyrics, same everything. But it was by design because they knew that, that, that it actually had a response. They, they were going to get the response they wanted regardless from the people because they've been manipulated because of their own biorhythms. Yeah, that was uh, that was uh, a pretty viral video that came out in 2014, where you were seeing Luke Bryan, um, a uh, I think it was Parma Lee at the time. Yeah, um, all those uh, songs in that one key that all sound exactly the same. Yep, and it may as well have just been the same exact song, and they would yeah. just take it, and it had the same had the same beat, had the same tempo, time signatures, everything, and and the themes. And it was it was interesting talking to this program director where he said that by the time the 90s came around, the days of the 10 gallon hats and the belt buckles changed to where you had Randy Travis, you had Garth Brooks, they called them the hat acts. Yeah. And so they but then that had to adapt by the time the end of the 90s to the point where Garth Brooks is doing an alter ego. <laughs> Chris Gaines. Funny, we just a buddy buddy was just talking we're talking about if you could bring any artists back somebody put on on facebook he said chris gaines <laughs> i'm like don't worry he's not dead he's gonna come back someday <laughs> he will he should have opened for garth i think yeah. that would have been fantastic that would have been, been like, like an andy kaufman thing yeah. dirk Bentley does that 
he has a '90s uh, cover band that actually opens up for his band. Like oh, his he does. Band, yeah, yeah. So it's pretty funny. Or like Nikki Six with Six A.M. Yeah. So, but it was funny how they said by around 2000, right? You had the the diva acts. You had the divas in pop music, but then you had the you had Shania, you had Leon Leon Womack, and you had these massive uh, female Martina McBride that were popping up. But then they had to do something with the males, and that's where you had Rascal Flatts. And they he was telling me how Rascal Flatts kind of changed the genre where it was basically pop music uh, with a, a little bit of a slide guitar. Right. And and but they also had to change the fan and the, the where you see Jason Aldean has visible tattoos. He has piercings. He has instead of a long beard or a mustache, he's got a nice quaffed beard instead of having the 10 gallon hat. He can wear a, a John Deere trucker cap. And yeah. they were doing this that this was not a uh, this was not just out of nowhere. This happened. This was a concerted effort for many years. And like you said, and you back it up. That this was a this was an effort to try to create the perfect country, like the my good friend Steve Goodman wrote that song and said it's the perfect country and western song. And I said it has nothing about trains or getting Trucks, drunk or mama, mama and everything. Drunk, it, it, that song, by the way, is perfect commentary of what was going on. And that was in the seventies. That's yeah. not too far off from where we are. And I, and I hate, by the way, I hate ripping. I'm basically ripping on the genre. That's, that's no, 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 no. It's it's totally fine because I mean, I'm, dude, I'm an outsider on this. I'm actually. The, the more, especially the more my band grows together, the more we're doing stuff. And, and the new world is, is so different that I don't even think that, that genre is, is actually specific anymore. Like we just did a song with, um, you know, with Be Still from Nappy Roots. You know, we've been out, we've opened up for Queensryche. We just opened up for Ted Nugent. Yeah, we're a country band, but we also, you know, we can go from a Brantley Gilbert show to, a, uh, to an Oak Ridge Boys show, to a Queensryche show, to a Saliva show and still be us. So, I mean, so what genre does that put us in? Plus, to me, country has gone from being like back in the day, rock was ABBA to ZZ Top. You know, I mean, you would go in and you'd say, well, that's, that's a rock band. I mean, I don't know how you would put ABBA and ZZ Top in the same category, but that's what it used to be like for those people who remember like record stores and things like that. But now, and then country was always this little teeny little sliver of, of things, you know, it was so small. Now country is what rock used to be you know, from A to Z. I was just going to say that, yep. Yeah, now now it's, you know, I don't even know any A artists in country, but to, to ZC Top, which is now back in country, you know what I mean? And, and so it's kind of it's kind of funny that that, that is, um, it's expanded to be kind of a catch-all because you have hip-hop, you have, you know, like all this like rap country stuff, you've got all these- Tick, tick, pop. I've heard tick-hop, yeah, <laughs> where it's like TikTok country. <laughs> you know, don't get me started on that. It's, it is really sad because- they, they guess the industry just signed a fleet of TikTok artists. And so we had our big CMA event and people were like, I don't know any of these artists. Like, I don't know any of them. And there's like 20 of them that all got major record deals because they have TikTok. And I'm like, well, that's cool. But there's something about investing in a band and growing with a band and growing with a band sound, not just, oh, this guy looks cool on TikTok. I like him. I'm going to go listen to him. And I don't know. I mean, maybe it'll last. I just... Maybe I'm just bitter because I have terrible TikTok numbers. <laughs> <laughs> I think the marketplace decides because I've seen that in comedy where when YouTube's when when the YouTube star was started hearing about that about like six, seven years ago. And so comedy clubs were in a rush to go out and book a TikTok or a YouTube star. And if they do well, and you know, some have actually ended up doing well in comedy, but right. most of them 
and they they make a door deal they get paid the club gets paid and they realize oh boy this show is not really that good this guy hasn't done comedy very long so that could be the case in in with the tiktok country and rap and everything is that when you book him for the show if the audience is really not into it and they're like look i saw this guy on tiktok i thought it was funny i thought it was uh he, he's really talented and i realized no, he's just only does quick videos and he can't fill a show. Then the market decides and then they chew up and spit them out. And the industry is just like, okay, well, we'll just keep, we'll keep churning these out and we'll find whatever the next genre is, whatever the next uh, flavor of the month will be. Well, it doesn't hurt the industry any because, because they're not really investing anything into them anymore. No, I mean, mean, honestly, if I were a guy in the industry, I would sit around and they've, they've got a program that literally, once you poke up past a certain number, they just scoop you up. Like they don't do A&R anymore. They don't go out and listen to bands. They don't even, I don't, most guys don't even care what a band sounds like, but if you have certain numbers, then they will go, okay, let's approach that band and give them a deal, which is kind of a, I mean, but again, if I don't have to spend my money to promote a band or to build their fan base, then it, all I'm getting is profit. So, I mean, it makes sense from that, their point of view, but it's, but I do miss the days of, you know, like there used to be bands like I think Bob Seger is like a perfect example. Bob Seger was a guy who came out, had a, an album, didn't do very well. They put out another album. That album did a little bit better. Not that great. They get to the third album. He's starting to sell in the hundred thousands now, but he's been touring for four years, working his ass off. By the time they hit that fourth album, that album goes through the roof. He has some huge hits on it, but he's got this massive fan base. And Bob Seger is still, you know, a relevant artist in the, in the sense of, he could go out probably and tour and play huge places because he's Bob Seger and he's got these massive fans. I don't, I don't think you're going to get that anymore unless bands are able to build a fan base over time. Yeah. And also with how quickly things get chewed up and spit out by the consumer too, because I, I, I gotta believe, and this is one thing that kind of, you think about where, if you're an independent label, if you have your own label or you're part of some, some kind of indie and you're able to make your profits and that's great, but the downside is regular radio is not looking at bands who are independent. What they do is that they'll, if you're an unsigned artist or you're a local artist, a regular radio will put you on the radio at 11 o'clock on a Sunday when no one's listening. So you're not getting the true exposure that you should. Now you have that autonomy where you can expose yourself to a TikTok, a Spotify, a a SoundCloud and all these other places. But it's, it's gotta be very difficult to grow that fan base. And especially nowadays where does Gen Z, I mean, how are they responsive to music? Cause I'm a millennial, I'm 34. And I've seen how my generation looked at music to where, I was of the, in my high school years was the iPod generation. Right. And if you had a, not me, I was, I'm a, an old soul and I like different music. Uh, but when uh, you had an iPod at that time and you downloaded on LimeWire, one of your favorite songs that was on the radio. And then six months later, that song's not on the radio anymore. You deleted it from your iPod instead of going, Hey, I remember that. Or, or if they do hear that song, it's like, God, this is retro. How old is this song? It's eight months old. Wow, it seems like it came out 10 years ago. Well, yeah, because you keep deleting songs yeah. and you just cycle through so much music. So a song that came out in 2019 may as well be an oldie to you. So I'm wondering how the consumer is, um, I guess, consuming the product nowadays. That's that's definitely got to be an uphill battle, too. Well, I think the biggest thing now is you have to change your way of, of marketing. 
um, or looking at making music. I mean, only a few bands are capable of doing full albums now. We, we now have moved to the, where we're just doing a song every six weeks. You know, and at this point we're just putting out, you know, it sucks because now all of a sudden songs have become content. You know, whereas a song to me is a piece of art that we create. I mean, once it's done, it's, it's now content. I mean, once my creative process is done, I can look at it like a widget. But now it's, it's like, because the way everything works with Spotify and all these other things, if you go to put a song out, let's say we do a whole album, we do the whole album. I put the first song out as the main single, but we put the whole album up. If that first song doesn't get on massive playlists and just blow through the roof, the rest of the album is dead, like just dead. So why would you put out, why would you spend a year or six months, you know, working on 12 really great songs or you could do that time and then just put them out one at a time. And yeah. so now we're kind of at the put it out one at a time and each one seems to get bigger than the last. And so you keep hoping, you know, that, um, you know, that, that it'll, you know, they'll just keep growing. And then obviously it comes down to playing live. You know, do you put on a good live show? Are you entertaining? Is it worth me spending money to go see these guys? And that's something we really try to do is put on a really good live show and be a good live band. You got to make that one. And I'm tomorrow, uh, I'm recording this on uh, October 19th. Tomorrow up in Cleveland, I'm going to see a band that I've seen more than any band ever is Local H. And Local H is a two-person band. They had a big song called uh, it, uh, Bound for the Floor that came out in 1996. And yes, I mean, it's 20, over 25 years. They're still touring with that big song. And they've had a couple of songs since then. But the reason I go is not just to hear the one song. It's they put on a damn good live show. Yeah. And again, two people, bass pickups. You have uh, a, a drummer who is just uh, technically a, a great drummer. Um, and, and Scott Lucas is a, he can scream and he has a great time on stage. And they're also very personable because as soon as Scott gets done with his show, instead of, I need 20 minutes to myself, he, he runs off stage, drops his guitar and he plugs the square into his phone and is already taking merch orders at the table. It's amazing That's how awesome. quickly that goes. So it's uh, it's funny because of how that industry it has changed over time. And you've probably have seen it too in the years that you've been around where the industry went from, you put out an album and you toured to support the album. Now it seems like you're putting an album to support your tour. Is that yeah, you, not you put, about right? Like I said, you put out content so people have an idea who you are and then you try to tour as much as you can because really touring and, and, um, and merchandise, that's, that's really the only real form of revenue stream that we have now because streaming doesn't pay anything. And, and that's really sad. And then, and then it's weird because if people like, if you really love a band, any band, I don't give a shit who it is, buy their stuff, buy a t-shirt. One t-shirt is worth, you know, probably like 10,000 streams you know, some ridiculous number like that. So, I mean, but that, and that's so much more for a band, you know, that, that kind of thing, support people. I mean, actually the funny thing is, is sharing a post, liking a post, all these things are really beneficial to artists that you like. I mean, it doesn't cost, those don't cost you anything, you know? And so, and telling your friends word of mouth is still really valuable, um, believe it or not. Cause you know, if I'm telling you, Hey man, you, you just told me about a band, I'm going to go look them up. I'll go, Hey, that is pretty cool. Maybe I'll go check them out. And then that, that's, that's how bands grow. Still, which is funny is with all the digital in the world, it still comes down to uh, being personable and word of mouth. Yeah, it's true. And that's kind of what happened. We 
we we happen to be in the same town and we saw you guys a month uh, a few months ago and now i'm bringing a bunch of people to go see you guys coming up yeah. next month so it's yeah. yeah it is definitely word of mouth and also the thing is uh you know gosh in the last month i've seen i saw nine inch nails um i've seen a lot of acts that uh, have been around you know i've seen the big acts i have seen the aforementioned bob seeger live and you get done you go see the show and you want to buy a concert t-shirt and the t-shirt's 45 dollars and right. if you want a long sleeve shirt, it's 75. And if you want a hoodie, it's 120. You go, I don't have the money for that. But if you see these small, I guess, smaller acts at smaller stages, t-shirts are usually about 20. So that's why I have so many t-shirts. Do, do I have t-shirts say Bruce Springsteen on them? No, but I have other bands that probably need the help and would love to have that kind of exposure. And I have 20 bucks. I have 25, yeah. I have 30 bucks. I'm going to go support you. And uh, whether it's a tour T-shirt or something or a hat or a poster, um, another band I've seen a bunch of times is uh, Sponge, another example of a band that's a road warrior that goes out there, plays basically any venue, has a lot of local openers that go see them. And I made sure to go get posters and get T-shirts and everything because A, I think they're a great band. B, I would like them to be known for more than just singing plowed, but yeah. it's great for people to hear them. But but C, is it is a billboard for a band that yeah. it's probably the best thing because like you said, you're not making anything. I mean, it's so funny when you think 20 plus years ago with Lars and Napster and saying, you know, we need to get compensated for our art. Well, nowadays, Napster is child's play compared to what they're putting out there. You buy YouTube music, you buy Spotify like a premium, and you're basically paying $10 a month for unlimited music. Where's, yeah. where's that money going? Who's who's getting the money? And it's clearly not the artists. No, it is not at all. It's not the writers, it's not the artists. I mean, it's weird. Everybody used to bitch about terrestrial um, you know, plays, but th those actually, people would love to go back to that, that rate at this point. <laughs> You know, and the funny thing, you know, just a little thing for people too. If you wonder when you go see a band opening for somebody and their t-shirts are really expensive is because you have to price match the headliner. So if you happen to be like watching somebody and you're like, man, I'd buy their t-shirt, but you know, it's at the same price as the headliner. It's because you almost always have to price match and things, yeah. which kind of sucks for, you know, if you're the opener, cause you, you know, but they don't want you to undersell them. So that's just a little, another inside thing for people who didn't know. <laughs> that's uh well that, that that's good to know yeah because I, I noticed that last week when i saw drowning pool and when drowning pool was up there and their t-shirts were like 35 and i'm seeing the the other acts that were part of it through fire and others and they all had the same price so i'm like okay so that that makes sense now yeah yeah you have to you have to price match the headliner i mean sometimes they, i mean it all depends on the headliner i mean some i mean some guys are like dude i know what it's like i don't give a shit just go ahead do it you know and then sometimes they also limit um, you'll get limited amount of things you can sell. Like you can, like they'll say two, like two shirt designs and and like a, a CD, or two shirt designs and a hat, and that's it. So that's another reason why you'll see some openers with some kind of limited um, inventory. Okay, yeah, that's um, that makes sense. Absolutely. So I wanted to, well, not really switch gears because it's kind of all on the same topic. But um, earlier this year, we went to Nashville, my wife, and we had a couple of friends, we went down to Nashville and, you know, you go up on Broadway and you go to all the places that, um, uh, that, that are out there, especially some places they'll charge $2 for a PBR and the next place like Tootsie's will be $9 for a PBR. Right. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you, you hit all those places, but you say you've been in Nashville for about 15, 16 years. 
How has Nashville changed in this time? Because I, I remember going there as a kid 30 years ago and Nashville was kind of, I, I don't want to say it was a dump, but it wasn't, it was like falling on hard times. It was, uh, you know, again, the belt buckle and the cowboy boots. And even though that's still kind of around, you started hearing these acts move from New York and LA and that they were all moving to Nashville. And it wasn't just country acts. You were hearing the White Stripes and uh, Jack White and others that were moving, uh, the Black Keys moving to Nashville. How right, has that we explosion have, been? It's crazy because, I mean, you have, you have like, you know, Vince Neil lives here. I think McMorris has a house here. You have Robert Plant has got a place here. I mean, it's pretty crazy the, the, the amount of people who have moved here. Yeah, our city has become way too cool and it's full. So if you want to come to Nashville, there's no more room. Sorry. <laughs> We're out. You guys can just come visit anytime you want, but don't move here, please. Please. No, I'm just kidding. You, um, you have Whataburger down there now. We do have Whataburger. As soon as they get in and out burger, it's over. I mean, that's just the world will come to an end. Oh, that um, means that that means that California, Tennessee. Yeah. <laughs> like what they're doing in Austin, Texas right now. Yeah, pretty much. And, you know, it's like, it's, and you know what? Cool. You know, the reason you move to Nashville is because you like Nashville. Then leave wherever you're at behind you and move into Nashville and become Nashville. Don't bring whatever you had going on back in California or up in New York to Nashville. Nashville doesn't need it. What made Nashville cool is it was Nashville. You don't, we don't need all the whatever, you know, whatever the LA thing or the New York thing is. I used to live in LA, so I can say that. But um, that was the cool part about Nashville is it was you got away from people ignoring each other or people not talking to each other. I mean, it was my wife always knew when I was in, you know, in Nashville for any amount of times because I'd always talk to everybody. You know, I'd be like, hey, what's going on? People are like, what? Do you, don't talk to me. <laughs> but um, no, I mean, it's changed. Like the crazy thing, we, we live in East Nashville, in Inglewood. When we first moved here, I mean it's 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 a gentrified neighborhood i know that's probably a dirty word but it was a, you know it was an older poor neighborhood that that has been slowly like you know all the homes have been like redone you know our house is almost 100 years old so it's kind of one of those when we first got here nobody was like walking around that much you know we had a dog we'd go out and walk and i think would see one other person and then we'd go out and jog didn't see a lot of that and now you can't walk we can't walk like half a block without seeing a neighbor a neighbor with a dog and and all that and everybody yeah everybody is from somewhere else everybody um and yeah in downtown it's like it went from five or six really cool bars to where there's like 60 bars downtown with three stages per bar that are going from you know 11 o'clock in the morning to three o'clock in the morning every day and some of them have fried bologna sandwiches you can order yeah so i mean that's pretty cool <laughs> i mean honestly to, to come visit it's probably got to be one of the coolest places in the world because you just go down to the top of Broadway. You can just go bar to bar to bar to bar to bar. I mean, you'll hear 20 versions of Sweet Home Alabama. You'll hear 20 versions of, you know, um, Chattahoochee. Chattahoochee. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, everybody's playing pretty much the same. It's like my, my bass player calls it the uh, music factory. You know, I'm going to strap on my guitar and head down to the music factory. <laughs> um, but I mean, you know, now these guys can make really good living, you know, playing down there. It used to not be that way. But so there's, so that's a good thing. I just, you know, it's not our scene. It's not what I do, but it's, it's a cool, it's a cool thing. Have you ever played the Opry? No, I wish. Not even on like an, uh, an off night or anything. No, no, we're, like I said, we're, we're, we're pretty outside. You know, we kind of, when we, for a while, when we first came to town, we kind of got in and worked with a lot of the, the, the in people and did all that. And I got to tour with some really great artists, but then we've just kind of, 
we just kept kind of floating away doing our own thing. And I just became less and less interested in, in kind of the, all the bullshit and just kind of started doing my own thing. And I've, and I've been successful enough to, you know, buy a house and live a life and I play music for a living. So I know a lot of people who have kind of gone up and down. I know a lot of people who have looked like they were going to be on top of the world and, you know, are now selling groceries. So, yeah. That's true. And, you know, you got to tour with Ted Nugent over the summer and it's not so much that you're trying to latch on to somebody like Ted Nugent, but it's that somebody liked your sound, thought it was going to work with a Ted Nugent audience. And it clearly does if you were doing those dates. So it's, I mean, that, that was a hell of a gig, I'm sure. It was crazy. Like I said, we, we, we've been a really weird band in the sense of the, the people we've opened for. I mean, I've opened, like I said, for Oak Ridge boys and Queensryche. I mean, that's, that's pretty much as far away as you can get. And both shows went great. So, I mean, I guess, I mean, we obviously played different material for different shows, but it's still our material. And um, yeah, the Ted thing, man, I, I, I couldn't have asked for a better situation. I mean, we came out and, you know, our first song is a song called Devil and it definitely kicks people in the teeth. And they were like, oh crap. <laughs> and then by the time we finished with Gypsy Soul, we had the entire, you know, the entire crowd standing on their feet singing. Yeah, you, you do get everybody to, you you kind of tour, you get them an opportunity for them to like, here's here's the chorus and everybody starts singing it. And uh, yeah, it gets stuck in your head for the rest of the night. Yeah, so we, we had that going. And I mean, you know, and Ted was, I mean, super gracious. Um, he was just funny because the first time he met me, he's like, man, you too got too much Motown, too much soul to be a country singer. And he just kept always saying that. And then you know, he came out and said some really nice stuff about us online. And, um, you know, I thought that was really cool. We always called us bombastic, shit kicker, American um, barbecue sauce, spunk brother. <laughs> yeah, that's what because th- that's what's great about your body of work. If people go listen to uh, Rick Monroe, just look it up wherever, you know, you get your you know, music nowadays, is that you have this side of you, which is like a pop song. But then yeah. you'll go for others where it's you're having some hard rocking guitars and it's all over the place. And what I like is that you guys do not pigeonhole yourselves to that one genre. Like, hey, we're country. We're going to fall in line. Like I always look at it as the ACDC effect is that when Bon Scott was with ACDC, you're hearing blues, you're hearing rockabilly, you're hearing a lot of different stuff. But after Bon Scott died, they bring Brian Johnson on. You just kind of hear the ACDC sound that that, you know, people like it, but they really fell into something where a lot of their songs sounded alike, but it worked for them and you know right. they made bank on it. But I, I like having an opportunity where I can play your music at a, at a party, not show them who's playing it. And they would, wouldn't guess who did this song, this and this. And I'm like, it's all the same guy. It's all yeah. the same band. <laughs> That's what I love about it. I love the variety. Well, and, and I thank you. That's cool. I think my, in my band, especially because really up until a year ago, I was a solo artist. And then once we got in to do the record, two years ago, we started working together. By the time we got done with the record, I said, okay, well, you know what? You guys have really invested time and energy and you're part of it. So that's when we started Rick Monroe and the Hitmen. So it's like an entity that's that's actually kind of a new entity. So it's funny, like this year has been amazing. And I'm like, you know, we've only really been a band, this band for a year, you know, because that's what we've been pushing and is all this new material. So I, I think it's done really well for this band being what it is being a band for a year and you know we, we we've only got about five songs out right now or four or five songs but we're you know, like i said we're going to be putting out a lot more stuff under rick monroe and the hitman but i think it's also every, everyone has such strong influences 
and together, I think it really, it, it makes something cool. Absolutely. And I, I, I can't wait to see you guys again. And even it's so weird how you're on stage with Ted Nugent at these huge venues. And then I get to see you at Bristol Republic in Columbus, Ohio, yeah. a, a place that just, I think two months earlier, I was on stage doing live band karaoke and I was, <laughs> I was singing. It was a great time, but it's what, what's interesting is that you, because uh, it, it kind of coincides with Nashville and everything was the, the COVID stuff and the, one thing that really bothered me when I worked in radio and corporate radio during 2020 was how people who didn't have to worry about where their next paycheck was coming from, and they didn't have to worry about not keeping a roof over their head or food on the table for their families or gas in their car to get to work or, or gas anywhere, was that you were having people kind of look down upon gig workers that not everybody is going to be, uh, you know, not everybody's Billy Joel who can sell out Madison Square Garden, that there's a lot of venues and artists and inside the venue, the bookers, the stagehands, everybody else who's a part of it all got shut down for the better part of a year and a half. And I hated the fact that I, and I resented that I was in an industry that looked down upon people and thumbed their nose. Be, oh, what do you just want to go see a concert? It's like, it's not just going to see a concert. And because of that, a lot of people and, and the restrictions and the lockdowns and the masks and the vax cards and everything that popped up, why they left where they were at in California or in Oregon or New York, and they came to places like Tennessee. And they all kind of flocked there, which is why it's so big right now, because people were trying to escape that authoritarianism that was happening. And so roundabout way of me asking you this, how did you manage? Was the, was the band... Uh, formed because you guys wanted to get something together, get some band practice and figure, hey, let's start a band? Or how, how did you manage yourself during that crazy time of 2020 into 21? Well, we the thing was, we had just come off a West Coast tour with pretty much the band that we have, except for the drummer. So it was, it was Alan, Bobby and I and another drummer. And right when we finished that tour, you know, the very beginning of uh, uh, 2020, all of a sudden it started like you started seeing gigs start disappearing. And we started, and I think we got up to our very last show in Iowa. We were playing a casino and they're like, everything has now been canceled from here to the rest of the year, or at least for like, well, how we're like so many months. And we are like, Oh crap. So we got home and we're all like, well, we've all been hanging out with each other for the last, you know, five months, you know, touring. So obviously everybody's like, well, we can still hang out with each other because we all know, you know, everybody, cause everybody's so afraid. Like, is this some deadly virus? And so, so we were, we started going, Hey, well, let's start, let's start streaming. Let's start doing the streaming thing. And we actually had a sound guy at the time who was amazing, came in, figured out our rig and got us sounding. I mean, if you listen to some of the um, YouTube streaming stuff that we did or the live Facebook stuff, I mean, it was like some of the best in the business. As a matter of fact, we started having other streaming services asking us what we were doing. And we're like, well, Jim, our sound guy is the guy who's doing it. And, um, so that kind of kept us together. Um, we actually, at the time, our, our, our drummer had a psychotic break and made national news running around in a gorilla suit, scaring his neighbors. That's a whole other story. Um, then we ended up, then we ended up finally, the producer was like, when things started kind of opening up just a little bit, he's like, man, I want to do a record with you. I'm like, so let's come in the studio. So we went in and we started like working on a couple songs. That's kind of where we found our new drummer, Jason. And as that built, we're like, you know what? These songs are good. Let's do a whole album. Once we got into doing an album, that's when it was like, okay, this is this is definitely a band. 
like all the pre-production we did, all the work that we did, all the sounds that we created. So it was from kind of the beginning of that we worked all the way through it stuck together. And then, you know, we started picking up little gigs that were allowing you to play in places that were opening up. And we did all that really quietly because obviously we don't need people coming down on us for, you know, not caring or whatever that crap. Like you said, the authoritarian thing of, oh, you know, you're just going to go out and, but if a venue wanted to allow us to come in and play and was going to pay us, I mean, we were fine with it. And, um, you know, and we did that and uh, just kept quietly building it. And then once we kind of got all that together and got the album done, then like I said, this year has been just amazing for us. So you guys so, kept busy instead of, uh, you know, not doing anything, feeling sorry for yourselves. You... you know, we did a lot of writing. You know, that's the thing my bass player and I kind of set up to just have a, we had a, a weekly sit, um, write no matter what. And we just kept up with that. And we kept doing that. And that's what kind of created all the material that we ended up putting on the record. So, and that's, so that was all cool. And, you know, yeah, it, it is amazing. Like you said, all the people are trying to run away from certain places because they didn't like the way it is. First thing they do is try to make it like where they were. <laughs> Of course, you got to assimilate where you're going. And uh, I mean, look, I, I've last couple of years, I've wanted to leave and eventually did leave corporate radio and working a day day job, a blue collar job, but it affords me the opportunity to talk to people like you and do podcasting. And it's uh, it's been a lot different over time where how things have changed and how the, and, you know, kind of getting back to where we're talking about is that the gatekeepers are gone. Yeah. And I mean, they're still there in a certain way. They're, 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 they're at the top level, but you know, you can survive and kind of create your own ecosystem just under their radar. Yes. I mean, you know, once you kind of pop into the radar, then they start trying to dig and take away from you. But if you can just kind of ride up against them, then, then you're going to be okay. And you can do really well that way. And I think a lot of people forget that, you know? Well, yeah. And with, with gatekeepers that you're able to kind of, you know, if you can, get out there and get your product out there, whatever it is, whether it's a podcast, whether it's music, whether it's a stand-up comedy or just your brand of going out and saying like, Hey, I do Instagram reels or TikTok videos. It's, it really is all about branding and you can't rely upon some marketing firm to do that for you anymore, or a comedy club or a, um, a, a music venue that's going out and make, making flyers. That's not necessarily the case as much anymore that it's up to the artist to kind of put themselves out there and be their own publicists. But right. uh, in some ways it's, it, it is kind of freeing because you don't have to deal with a lot of that red tape. Yeah. Well, I think actually the funny thing is, is we've been discussing going back to old school and trying to create street teams and stuff. Cause, um, cause I almost think that that, that would be more effective now just in the sense of, cause no one does it. You know, if all of a sudden people were out actually putting up flyers and, and pushing a band and a fan, you'd probably be like, wow, I've never seen anything like this. Like the I mean, Kiss Army. Yeah, kind of like something like that, because that's actually what kind of, you know, has driven a lot of bands back in the day. And now it's because the thing is, is nobody really looks at a, at, a, at a Facebook event that much. Nobody really looks at a lot of these things. But if, if, if it's back in, in, you know, what we call the analog world, maybe people would take notice. So that's something we've been kicking around trying to be like, you know. Because if, you know, if phones go down, where are you at? You know, you're, you're kind of stuck. But, if, you know, it used to be that bands did really well with absolutely no smartphones. So obviously there, there, are, there are routes. So we're, we're trying to see if we can tap back in. If there's still a desire to do that, I don't know if there is or not. Well, and the best part is I, one thing that I do not take for granted, whether it's a, a comedy show or a concert, is that they could shut things down again 
at some point they could say the blank climate change or whatever. So I never take any show I've gone to see for granted. I've made sure in the last year and a half since things have reopened to go see as many concerts as I want to. Uh, also, before I try to have kids and yeah. <laughs> it's, it's hard to go out to, to a concert on a Tuesday night and go like, hey, honey, I know you're home with the kids, but um, I'm going to go rock out. See you. Bye. <laughs> yeah, I, I saw Lit is going to be uh, playing down the street and I'm going to go see that. Uh, I'll be home at uh, 1230. But uh, you, you want to get a lot of that stuff out of the way. And that's what's uh, really cool about it. And, and I think it seems what I've noticed, at least in comedy, is that audiences, they may be coming a little bit back to earth right now, but people haven't been out of the house a lot and right. that they've had an opportunity. So when they do go out, they're going to have a great time and uh, uh, getting a chance to see you in the band a few months ago and getting a chance to see them next month. It's such a great time. It's such a great yeah. time. And one thing I loved about what you guys do is you play the audience. Yeah. <laughs> you really did play for the audience. And uh, it was, it was amazing to the point where like, not only are we going to see them, we're going to get a hotel down here uh, so we don't have to drive two hours back home. No, that's a good idea. Well, the funny thing is, too, in a room like that, and in that show, man, like, um, we, we've we kind of stopped. We, we're moving out of the club scene, and we're making a move to that. We've got a bunch of other, we're, we're looking at some other tour dates, like with some other artists. And that's kind of, so that might be one of the last times that we'll we'll play that venue. You know, we, we you know they've been asking us to book more dates, and we're just kind of like, is it, when we played Kimba Live, we did so well though that it's like, well, we should be playing like a hard ticket sale room in that in that market. But we'll, we'll you know, we, we'll we've already we booked this a long time ago, so we're going to go ahead and do it. Yeah, you're and honoring we'll, your, you know, yeah, we're honoring our commitments. But yeah, the band's like, you know, we we want moving kind of out of that you know venue. But I mean, it's still it's a great place. They've always been really good to us, and um, you know, it's funny though. It's funny, man. For some reason, I was we were talking about like different things and opening for people. You know, the craziest thing about opening for Ted was. It wasn't that I was opening for Ted. It was everybody I did an interview with asked me about politics. Yes. Everybody or, or controversy. Mm-hmm. That was always, every interview was always like, so how do, how do you deal with him? And how do you deal with the controversy? You know, where, you know, and then like, I'd be like, that's Ted. Ted does Ted. Yeah. We go on stage. We do our, uh, we do our set. He does his set. And yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I got to tell you one thing that if, if you're a person that, that is, that is that it is, gets politically upset about anything. You definitely don't want to go to a Ted Nugent show. That's true. Yes, <laughs> that is true. But uh, speaking of shows, uh, uh, anything you want to plug as we uh, wrap up, as we say in the business, uh, we're wrapping up the podcast. Because uh, uh, I know you do your own podcast, kind of on the road stuff. Uh, yeah. What uh, what what would you like to promote? Well, uh, that's called Road Life, which I interview people that make a living on the road. I've had comedians. I mean, I've had. You know, uh, just like sons, it's, it's amazing that people I've had. I've had uh, Grant Fuhrer, who's won five Stanley Cups. I've had Johnny Damon. I just had one uh, come out today, my buddy Dino, the merch guy who works with um, Pop Evil. And I think he's done Shinedown and a bunch of other stuff like that. I've had truck drivers. I've had all kinds of people. So it's anyone who makes a living on the road. And so it's just a little conversation about what life is like for them. Um, uh, that's it. Obviously, Rick Monroe and the Hitman. All of our music, you know, we were on YouTube. We're, you know, like my um, TikTok numbers suck. So if you want to help me out with TikTok, join us. We do put stuff up, and maybe we'll we'll get better at it. Um, Instagram. I mean, we're on everything. We're on every musical platform. The only problem is, is they were never able to take Rick Monroe and Rick Monroe and the Hitman and put them together. So those are two different things. So if you're looking for like a Rick Monroe song, there's a whole page for that. If you're looking okay. for Rick Monroe and the Hitman. 
It's a whole page for that on Apple and on uh, Spotify. Okay, great. Well, uh, Rick, this is great. Uh, great talking to you. I can't wait to put this out. And again, I can't wait to see you guys next month when uh, we come on down for what might be your last uh, last show in a venue like that. And we'll next time we'll uh, I'll say, well, look, Rick got big time. He's over on the stage and he's charging for, to go see him now. Well, you'll always get tickets, man. So don't worry about it. So you're good. You're set. <laughs>